Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. During this weekend, thousands of voting rights supporters will participate in the 58th commemoration of the horrific events which occurred on Bloody Sunday, March 7, 1965, in Selma, Alabama. Known now as the Bridge Crossing Reenactment, this annual event is designed to honor those individuals who set out to demand the passage of federal legislation to protect the rights of African Americans to vote. During that initial march in 1965, John Lewis of SNCC, Hosea Williams of SCLC, led over 650 peaceful marches from the Brown Chapel AME Church to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which was to be the first leg of a widely publicized march to Montgomery, Alabama. The march and an accompanying rally focus on the systemic and historic denial of the right to vote by African-Americans and demanded the passage of federal legislation to give legal protections to African-Americans who sought to register to vote and to promote people to register. The Edmund Pettus Bridge was six blocks away from the church and had to be crossed in order for marchers to leave Selma. As the participants marched in pairs along the sidewalk of the bridge, they were confronted by a corridor of over 50 armed Alabama state troopers and other white vigilantes. Some rode horses and others were on foot, but all were dressed in riot gear and armed with whips, batons, and clubs. When marchers neared the end of the bridge, they were informed that they would not be allowed to cross the bridge and leave the town. Immediately after this announcement, the troopers and vigilantes unleashed canisters of tear gas, charged into the marchers and conducted a vicious and brutal baton-wielding attack on the defenseless and trapped marchers. This vicious attack which was recorded by television cameras and radio, resulted in the hospitalization of 17 marchers, including John Lewis and Hosea Williams, march leaders, and serious injury to more than 100 other women, men, and children. On this program, we are going to discuss Bloody Sunday and the continuing struggle to achieve and promote voting rights in this country for African-Americans and people of color. Joining with us to discuss these issues are our political experts, Dr. Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Political Science Department and Ajama Dillahun, a NCCU alum who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan and presently is a professor 
at East Carolina University. So to our guests, good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Always, always a pleasure. Well, first of all, let me just thank you for uh, taking time out of your very hectic schedules to join us for this uh, very important uh, discussion. So going on, my first question to, to the both of you is, why is the ongoing commemoration of Bloody Sunday important? What is it that people should know? And why should they know? What, well, Dr. Hall pointed to me, so I'm jumping on to it. You know, as as a student of his, you know, Dr. Hall, you know, encourages you to speak, so you you move forward. What <laughs> I, I I think it's um. Did that before. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's um I think it's important uh, because uh, you know Bloody Sunday uh, not only represents uh, I think it's twofold. It not only represents uh, you know the will uh, that people had uh, to challenge. Uh, the racist, you know, anti-democratic uh, structure of society um, at that point, but it goes to show you uh, the will uh, that a, a system, uh, that a society, a, a governing uh, body will go to to have people not participate uh, in the political process. And so uh, I think we oftentimes, a lot of people when looking at events similar to um, to Bloody Sunday, uh, look at it as, that, oh, you know, it's the uh, the sacrifices you know that people made as to why we should participate in it, but it's it's not not that that simple. Uh, it's something much deeper there uh, that uh, encourages us why we should uh, continue to fight for the vote, why we should vote, and why we should do other things. And I think that point being uh, what it represents, you know, to the larger society in terms of what people will do to prevent something from happening and what people will will do to make something happen and put their bodies on the line. Yeah, it was a, uh, uh, these commemorations are very important mm -hmm. uh, to uh, not only past history, but contemporary history, today's history. They are never forget reminders of what had to take place in order for voting rights uh, to be expanded to people that who should have had them from the very beginning of the Republic. It shows the uh, struggles. It, it, it also, just as Ajamo said, it exposes what the system would do when you challenge uh, the exclusion of uh, a large uh, part of the potential electorate from the ballot box. Uh, that violence was the response uh, from the system in order to prevent the, the people from voting. And so um, we always have to be reminded of that. And we always have to be reminded because we're still in the struggle. Uh, as you know, we are still fighting for voting rights, and it is uh, uh, a, a shame, uh, a taint on the United States that the kinds of struggles that we had in, in, back in 1965 are still some of the struggles that are going on now. Well, you know, since you, since you raised that, can you just kind of explain to our audience just what the uh, condition of African Americans were? Uh, prior to 1965, and what is it? Uh, what 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 was the depth of the uh, repression that African Americans suffered from, without being able to exercise the right to vote? Well, the the uh, uh, suppression of the vote itself, and 
uh, we, we use a different terms to talk about really the same thing, and that's excluding African Americans to vote, the, the suppression, vote uh, dilution, and, and all these kinds of things. But of course, uh, African Americans generally in, in the South and in other places outside the South were confronted with restrictions to their ability to even register to vote, uh, such, as, uh, such as literacy tests, poll taxes at one point, the grandfather clause, uh, and of course, that prevented African Americans from participating in the decision-making process as citizens, um, and therefore the ability to influence uh, the educational system, uh, uh, the criminal justice system, all of these things that have an impact on our lives had no uh, had no input uh, uh, from from an elected uh, official position uh, into these kinds of decisions. Uh, and so, uh, but the main thing too is it was enforced again by violence and fear and intimidation and widespread terrorism. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Dr. Hall um, made, a, made a, a, a strong point in terms of widespread terrorism. And as we talk about Bloody Sunday, the event you know, that led up to it uh, was very bloody with uh, the murder of uh, Jimmy Lee uh, Jackson, uh, which you know, sparked the march. He was uh, an organizer and encouraging people to participate uh, in, you know, the electoral process in order uh, to vote. And he was uh, murdered by a state trooper. Uh, and so, um, you know, it was it was a, a real, 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 real brutal uh, experience, you know, for African-Americans uh, who even attempted to or uh, thought about or even, you know, in some cases, if people got wind, you know, you were uh, thinking about voting, violence could, could come to you uh, and your family. So it was uh, prior to it was intense. And of course, uh, we saw in Wilmington uh, what it was like, you know, uh, when African-Americans, you know, were able to vote uh, and uh, the type of society uh, that, you know, they, uh, we were encouraging uh, and the backlash uh, that, that, uh, that took place uh, in response, in response to it. So Wilmington is, is fresh on my mind. Uh, we just finished with finished talking about it on Tuesday in class, but today in class, we, we plan to go uh, deep into it. So uh, I learned about the Wilmington Massacre in uh, Dr. Uh, Hall's class. We actually read this, uh, uh, The Ghost of, of uh, 1898. Uh, I believe it was my, my freshman year uh, when, we, when we learned about it. And so now uh, I'm taking what I learned in uh, Dr. Hall's class and you know passing it on to my students, but it just goes to show the um, the real, you know, experience that African Americans uh, had, you know, the violence uh, when trying to uh, do things that uh, can be achieved only with the vote, uh, and so yeah, Wilmington is a good example of that. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Jimmy Lee uh, Jackson and his uh, his death uh, there because it raises then uh, in my mind the question of uh, why Selma, why why how how and why did the voting rights movement center around what occurred in little old Selma, Alabama that had about uh, 3,000, 4,000 people as uh, residents there that was pinned into uh, Alabama across a bridge named that after a Confederate uh, general. So what is the significance of Selma in launching what is now called the greatest movement for African-Americans in this country to result in the uh, passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that Selma uh, 
was one was one one of the more repressive places with regard to voting rights uh, and segregation. And so, what it represented, uh, Selma was not alone, obviously. And again, it represented uh, what was taking place not only in Alabama but throughout the South and in places outside of the South. Uh, I think the uh, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC) uh, had gone into Selma to do some grassroots organizing. And as they were doing this, they uh, talked about the importance of voting rights as one of the things, along with uh, the continued desegregation efforts. And this is even after uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, <clears throat> and so that attracted a lot of attention. And eventually, SCLC moved in. And, uh, uh, and just as Ajamu said earlier, the march itself was designed to bring attention to what had happened to Jimmy Lee Jackson and uh, uh, and uh, uh, and the brutality uh, behind that, uh, and to uh, dramatically show the country what was going on, and that did indeed happen in 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 the marches uh, that took place with regard to settlement. Adama, did you want to add some thoughts to that? No, no, uh, Dr. Hall, uh, yeah, yeah, hit it right on the head. You know, SNCC being there, uh, you know, prior to, and you know, I, I guess it's good to discuss too because on the SNCC Digital Gateway, it's, it's discussed a little bit about you know uh, the history of the march itself, uh, you know, the position that SNCC took as an organization, and and then uh, what you know members were able to do, um, and I think there was some hesitation organizationally. Uh, in terms of supporting the march, uh, but SNCC has said that individual members, you know, could participate, you know, if they if they um, if they wanted to. So it shows the um, you know the the dynamic of you know uh, thinking at the time, you know, being committed to voting rights, but uh, strategy, you know, how going into the march, some of that you know may have differed between SNCC and SCLC, and you know, it wasn't like a, a drama type of thing, but it was you know. It was, you know, a difference, you know, in I, I guess approach or uh, tactical wise. And and even though Selma is certainly viewed as one of the high points of the civil rights movement for what it did and what it accomplished, <clears throat> it also began to expose uh, some cracks uh, mm -hmm. in the civil rights movement itself, and especially between SCLC and uh, SNCC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one of the points that um, both of you have kind of raised is um, in talking about um, Selma and Selma being the, the place where we have um, this challenge being brought. I want to get your reactions to, so when we think about when Bloody Sunday occurred, so it was 1965, and, and this was after there had been so many protests and individuals who were fighting for equality. So if we think about um, the sit-ins, the student sit-ins, which took place in the 1960s, and we think about the Freedom Rides, 1961, we also have the March on Washington, 1963, and of course, we've, we have the Civil Rights Act in 1964. When we think about the opposition to uh, giving African-Americans and Black folk full citizenship rights in the form of voting, 
Can you talk about why that was, despite all of the gains that had been made, there was so much opposition to Blacks being able to vote? And both of you have kind of touched upon this already. So when we think about being a um, being full participants in society, when we think about particularly in the South, where we have many cities that have a Black majority, it's like, why was it that there, well, we, we kind of know why, but I'd like to have you all kind of share your thoughts on why there were so many that were digging their heels in the sand when it came to giving full voting rights to African-Americans to the point where they were willing to engage in such violence um, against you know, peaceful protesters with the cameras rolling. Like, why was there so much resistance to that? Um, but we're gonna have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have you to share your thoughts. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we're talking this hour about Bloody Sunday, which occurred on March 7th, 1965, the march from Selma to Montgomery. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, our wonderful guest, Dr. Jarvis Hall. He is a NCCU political science professor and Ajamu Dillahunt, who is a former student of Dr. Hall, and he is an NCCU alum and now a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan and a professor in his own right at East Carolina University. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about Bloody Sunday, which occurred on March 7th, 1965, 
when there was a march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama planned in order to highlight the continuing struggle to achieve and protect voting rights for African-Americans in this country. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Jarvis Hall, Professor of Political Science here at NCCU and Ajamu Dillahunt, an NCCU alum and a doctoral candidate at Michigan State, and he's also a professor at East Carolina University. So right before the break, I was asking you both to share your thoughts on why it was that there was so much opposition to voting, notwithstanding progress that had been made, particularly with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which had occurred just the year before. Mm -hmm. um, still a lot of opposition to giving Black folk the full right of citizenship, which includes voting. Ajama, you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you uh, you mentioned it uh, early on. The um, the main reason is that in a, a lot of uh, the counties um, in the South um, are located in the, the Black Belt region, where you know one you know slavery reached its, its highest stage and was the most profitable. Were, were places. Uh, where African Americans outnumbered, uh, you know, uh, whites, and so uh, if black people were able to participate. It could transform uh, an entire an election. You know, it would it it was the the center of the possibility uh, of black political power. Um, it was where you know uh, real transformation could happen if people were were given the right to vote. And it reminds me of um, you know something I I learned about in undergrad, very very detailed. Lowndes County, Alabama. You know, it was a uh, you know, a county 80%, you know, black, but uh, in the time of 19, what, 65 or 1966, when SNCC got there, only one black person was was registered to vote. And this was um, after, uh, I believe, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that this battle uh, was still uh, was still being being waged. And, you know, one, one other thing is that even after uh, the Voting Rights Act and, you know, the possibilities of, of voting uh, were increased because, of course, violence continued. Uh, you had going into the 1980s, I mean, decades after uh, where Black people uh, could vote, but uh, the racism was so in, in, engraved into the political structure uh, that, you know, you could vote, but still, you know, you couldn't uh, have a, a Black person win an election, like for Rocky Mount uh, in the 1980s. Uh, African Americans were about forty percent of the population, but uh, an African American couldn't win uh, an election uh, because of the at-large system, uh, despite being uh, forty percent of the population. So there was no representation, uh, and so um, even after the Voting Rights Act, that system, that prevention uh, from participating, continued, and of course, uh, continues uh, today in in a variety of ways. Yeah, it uh, it all goes back to uh, the idea of power. And for the powerful wanting to maintain their position and the less powerful trying to alter their position as the less powerful. And uh, voting uh, was something that those who were powerful, those who were the political elites, saw that the uh, people who had been excluded, who had been marginalized, this would give them an opportunity to use uh, the power of government in order to uh, pursue their interests, which, uh, which some who were the elites would view as counter to their interests, uh, and so this this was the this was the stand that they that they were going to take. Uh, everything was uh, 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 
weakening uh, below them in terms of the segregation system uh, being uh, uh, legally uh, eliminated, legally anyway. And uh, But this was the last stand in terms of voting. And just from a political perspective too, just as you said, the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act had just been passed the year before the Voting Rights Act in 1965, you know, and people from just from a political political perspective, looking at uh, all the changes that were taking place, it was a lot of change in a short period of time. And a lot of people can't deal with that, especially if you're used to the way things have been for decades and for centuries, really. And so uh, uh, people were adverse to this kind of change and just asking over, over and over again, what more do you black people want? We just want what you have. We just <laughs> want to have what we ought to have. And that's a recognition of universal freedom for everybody, including us. You know, even with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, <clears throat> it took a while for African-American in mass uh, to begin to register and to vote. And there were concentrated campaigns uh, directed toward uh, uh, encouraging uh, these uh, registrations. Why was it then so difficult to mobilize uh, this suppressed minority uh, to the point that they would now eagerly participate in uh, efforts to uh, register and vote? Well, part of it was uh, for many uh, whose sense of consciousness had not been raised to the level of actually trying to bring about real change. Uh, they viewed this as something that they had not done, that, that they had not done, uh, their, the generation uh, before them had not done. So in terms of citizenship, and exercising the vote as a part of that citizenship, this was something that they were just not used to. And, and how do you do it? How do you register? Uh, who do you vote for? Who are the candidates? What do the elected officials do? So the civic education just wasn't there. Uh, that was being corrected by organizations, as you said, who were fanning out you know, to, uh, uh, to, it, to inform and to educate. And that's why voter education was such an important element of that, the freedom schools and what have you. Uh, but also underlying that is, even though you, you had this concerted organizational effort to go to rural places, uh, to isolated places, they were rural and isolated. And once uh, these organizations left, they still had to live with the people who had used violence and terrorism in order to prevent them to vote. So, so that feeling was still there. So overcoming that is something that does not happen overnight. And, and it took some consciousness raising, some education, uh, and a lot of courage in which African-Americans show a lot of courage uh, to finally come out in larger numbers and to show exactly what their, their political power could do. Uh, ditto to everything Dr. Hall said. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, <laughs> he was always challenging me in class. You know, you know, Wait a minute, Dr. Hall, do you think that's it? 
you know, as you two were, you know, as you've been talking about um, why it was that there was so much opposition to voting, the struggle, even though, you know, even after the Voting Rights Act was passed to get people engaged, it, it reminds us that, you know, people, there's a saying, which is all politics is local politics, mm -hmm. right? And so even though you have this federal piece of legislation, landmark legislation in the Civil Rights Act, you know, the, the federal government can, can only do but so much. And we are impacted in large part by what happens at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so if, um, if you don't have an opportunity to be engaged at that local level, if there is terrorism at that local level, then you don't have that full kind of um, participation and, and citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wanted to ask you both about um, real quick as well is there are some unsung heroes, of course, when we think about how Mm -hmm. um, this march came about. And so you had Amelia Boynton, who was um, a local organizer there in Selma. We've mm -hmm. mentioned SNCC a couple of times. And when we think about where that organization was formed here, of course, in North Carolina at Shaw, um, with Ella Baker being the, the founding kind of um, uh, mm -hmm individual who helped get the students organized. And, and there are so many others. Can you talk about how it requires the efforts of a number of folks, not just those that we typically hear about and see, but in order for these movements to be effective, mm -hmm. having people at all levels participating, why that is so important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, 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 very crucial. Uh, and is you know how how change you know uh, takes place. And you know a lot of people uh, look at you know uh, the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act you know from uh, a top down perspective. But uh, the, the the real origins of it, you know, the ability for it to really uh, pass is really uh, more of a bottom up you know perspective. I mean, you know, I think it was before the Selma March, SNCC had been there uh, since uh, 1963. Um, and then, you know, uh, in Mississippi, uh, SNCC had been there, you know, since, you know, uh, the late 60s, early 1961 with Bob Moses and then Amzie Moore, you know, uh, who was a local leader encouraging, uh, you know, SNCC to, you know, to put voter registration uh, on his table. But yes, it's so many uh, local people and so many organizers who, you know, you know, had to uh, organize the class, who had to talk with people to uh, help overcome uh, that fear. Uh, and that's what propelled, you know, uh, the establishing of, you know, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that, you know, uh, was a huge gathering of and coordinating effort of, of people in Mississippi who have been disenfranchised. But, you know, we're going to build our own and challenge, you know, the democratic uh, structure ourselves. And, you know, that that type of energy, that type of thinking is what what achieved it, not, you know, from, you know, uh, an individual or. Uh, from, you know, some legislation, you know, that legislation was fought for uh, by people who who organized and built power among people most impacted to, uh, you know, to, to, to take a stand. You know, when you, when you look at North Carolina and the fact that uh, the first African-American elected to the North Carolina General Assembly uh, uh, was elected in 1968 uh, following that, but it was not until 
1980, mm -hmm. before there were more than four African-Americans who served in the General Assembly. Could you kind of just discuss the uh, importance of uh, the voter uh, mobilization efforts in North Carolina that has uh, produced uh, a lot of uh, elected officials who are now making key contributions to the growth and uh, development of, uh, of, of this state, and uh, which kind of echoes the importance of the uh, right uh, to vote and the exercising of, uh, of, of that right. Uh, Dr. Hall, you want to start us uh, with that? Well, there have been a lot of organizations uh, from that period and, uh, and even today that uh, go into places that may be neglected, uh, uh, especially by the political party apparatus in trying to uh, identify where uh, unregistered voters are, uh, to get them to register to vote, to educate them about what this particular upcoming election may be, meaning who's running and what issues are pertinent, uh, but also more importantly, to get them out to vote. Uh, the Voter Education Project, uh, very early on, uh, a lot of grassroots organizations always, uh, if they were worth their salt, had some sort of voter mobilization uh, uh, a component to it. And, uh, uh, and also national organizations, uh, the NAACP, uh, the Urban League, and, and a lot of other organizations uh, have, have committed resources, time, people, and money. Uh, to go into these places, and especially in rural isolated areas, to find uh, where the voters are uh, and where the non-voters are, uh, and to get them out to vote. And so it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort in order, in order to get this done. Uh, and what we have seen are the fruits of that. Uh, when we look at uh, the General Assembly now, uh, when you look at even uh, uh, the, the congressional delegation from the state of North Carolina in the United States Congress is not where it should be, but it has improved just in terms of being representative there. But also as a part of that, substantive representation is very important. So informing the people about how the issues impact your daily lives and the lives of the community and keeping elected officials accountable is also another component of what these organizations have done over time. I know we're going to talk more about um, kind of current day and why we are still wrestling with some of these same issues today when it comes to um, roadblocks that are being put up to try to prevent people from voting and, and getting people engaged <laughs> and um, being able to participate, be full, full citizens in society. Uh, but, I, but I wanted to kind of just go back for a quick minute and ask you both your thoughts about whether the Voting Rights Act would have been passed when it was, had it not been for Bloody Sunday. Like when we think about the political will, did, did the visual of Bloody Sunday and those that literally put their bodies and lives on the line, did that facilitate the passage of the Voting Rights Act? I think it did. I, I think that both you and Irv had mentioned earlier about the importance of this being televised. The revolution would not be televised, but it was then. Uh, it was shown as people were rising up. Uh, and, and again, it exposed the violence and the brutality behind disfranchisement. 
a lot of people thought that blacks didn't vote because they didn't want to vote. No, it, they didn't vote because they were being terrorized. Uh, and so uh, this played a major role in terms of that. And yes, you're right about what is the political will, going back to something that I mentioned earlier about the fact that uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had just been passed. And, and Lyndon Johnson, who was president at that time, said, I don't know if I have the political capital to go after voting rights right now, uh, right after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So, so it was dramatic events like Selma that convinced not only Lyndon Johnson, but the nation that we need to move forward on voting rights also. Yeah, and that goes back to something that we talk about a lot on this show, which is just knowing the history and being educated. And if you don't have a full understanding and appreciation of what we have gone through as a community, as a people in order to get the right <clears throat> to vote and, and the opposition that we were faced with at the time, then you may not fully appreciate what it means to vote today, right? And this gets back to something that Ajamu had mentioned, which is, you know, why we should vote is goes beyond just, well, people sacrifice themselves, right? It goes to really understanding how society works and how we should be involved in the creation of our society. And if you don't know your history, then it's hard to fully appreciate the complexity of it. And the reason why we talk about education and our history so much on this show is, of course, there are people that want to shut that down, who don't want our society, our young people to understand the history and how we got where we are and how the history should inform what we do going forward. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break, um, but when we come back, uh, we'd love to hear if you two have any you know, reactions to that, but then also kind of talk about what barriers are being put in place now for the exact same reasons that barriers were being put in place you know, back in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s. What, what are folks so scared about when it comes to um, Black and Brown people being fully engaged in our political process? You're listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We'll be right back and we hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. back on the uh, Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue 
uh, this uh, discussion about uh, Genetic Sunday and uh, the continuing struggle for uh, voting rights uh, for African-American and people of color in this uh, country. Our guest, Dr. Jarvis Hall, who is a political science guru at uh, North Carolina Central University and uh, budding guru, uh, the <laughs> NCCU alum, uh, who is a doctoral candidate at uh, Michigan State University and is uh, presently a professor at uh, East Carolina University, Ajamu uh, Dillahunt, and uh, we really appreciate their uh, their input. Uh, Ajamu, let me just 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 raise quickly with uh, with you uh, the uh, question that uh, that uh, April had posed, and just get your response, and then we'll uh, go to uh, Dr. Hall. And the question around knowing uh, history uh, and then into to present day, uh, correct? I want to make sure I'm I'm addressing. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so you know the, the history you know is is crucial, important. You know how you know things uh, developed in the way that they did, how things were you know able to to be achieved. And I think today, um, while the digital age is important, information can be widely spread. Uh, I think there's uh, myths about how to create change or that. Uh, only direct action uh, is important. I think one thing about Bloody Sunday, you know, by only focusing on that, you know, the march, that act, it takes, you know, it, we don't we don't go deep into uh, how, you know, it got to that point uh, anyway. Uh, and so sometimes it it uh, creates this um, this uh, ahistorical, apolitical type of view uh, among you know those who are uh, trying to create change today. And so um, I think you know classes. Uh, that take place in you know the Department of Political Science at at NCCU that forces you you know to go deep to look at you know the multiple uh, factors of things you know is is important. I think you know when we talk about Selma you know historically being a place uh, a crucial place uh, of voting rights uh, is important. But there's a, a book that just came out from uh, someone on the uh, who's on the SNCC Digital Gateway team, Carlin Forner, uh, which you know is about why the vote wasn't enough for Selma uh, and looking at um, you know, uh, how, you know, this is a huge place, huge victory in terms of voting rights, but on the economic front, there was a crisis uh, and left, you know, uh, the African-American community uh, in a very unstable place. So looking at uh, the interconnectedness uh, between uh, the economy and the vote, uh, and while it's, you know, a broader picture uh, that we, we, have to, uh, we have to engage in. And so uh, I think knowing our past is uh, deeply uh, embedded nature to it going beyond the surface level uh, is very important. I think kind of gets into today uh, a little bit and why you have, you know, some young people, I, I think uh, I'll call myself out a little bit, uh, but uh, when I came uh, into NCCU uh, and I remember when I was in Dr. Hall's class, I don't think voting was was on my, um, was on my, you know, list of things that were uh, a priority or important. I'm like, you know, you know, voting, you know, is cool, but, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do this. We need, you know, we need a revolution, you know, all these, all these different things where, you know, voting is actually part of the revolution. If you want to build independent political power, you got to engage, you know, um, in the electoral process. And so uh, having classes, you know, like Dr. Hall's put voting out of the narrow lens of being just, you know, a one-time thing or, you know, only, you know, uh, you know, one time a year or only limited to the election, uh, but it's the organizing to build uh, the type, you know, of elected official or the type of governing body uh, that you want to build that, you know, pushes uh, the narrative forward and not just simply voting some, for someone uh, and being done. And so 
yeah, you know, today, you know, with the, the possibility of that thinking, uh, there's efforts, you know, when I was at NCCU around the voter ID in terms of college students having to have a state issued ID when a lot of students, you know, were coming from out of state and, you know, uh, were living, you know, on campus and were registering on campus. Uh, it was a, you know, a tool to prevent students from engaging in the political process and expressing their power on the statewide, uh, you know, local and, you know, national uh, election. And so, um, you know, there's a, a lot of power, you know, uh, in the vote, but I think it's a lot of power uh, in what can it be achieved with movements for social change with the vote uh, that I think, you know, is really preventing um, or uh, causing uh, this attack, continued attack on voting rights. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hall. Yeah, I would agree with uh, everything that John was said and, you know, and just underscore the importance of knowing that uh, organizing is more than just a notion. It's, it's, it's not, we, uh, if we look back historically, uh, we remember, remember the great events, the Selma March, uh, the, uh, the March in Washington in 1963, uh, and, and the kinds of things that resulted from that, the, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But we forget what we had to do in order to get there, in order to get to that point. And uh, organizing can be very hard, it could be tedious, it could be very challenging. And, and we have to remember that we have to pass on uh, what it takes to organize a community, a state, a nation, in order to uh, uh, create a, a, move, a real movement for substantive change. And the vote is very important, as we've been talking about, but we can't we shouldn't overstate this importance. We should look at the vote as a power base from which you are able to do other things politically, socially, economically, and culturally. And uh, so we have to understand that. So that's why voting education, voter education is so very important. So you can see what the power to vote can do in order to expand the ability of marginalized people to uh, pursue their interests, to do things in the public sphere that would be that would be consistent with their needs and and their concerns. Well, have, having said that, uh, Dr. Hall, the uh, increase in the African American voter participation in two thousand and eight, with the election of Barack Obama, uh, scored victories all over the country as African Americans came out of the woodwork. Uh, to vote. In the past election, uh, African-Americans, people of color, went back under the woodwork. Uh, has voting lost its mojo? And has African-American and people of color lost faith in this uh, political uh, process, uh, including the uh, voting participation? I don't think they've lost faith. I think though that their, their trust in the system has waned. And there have been several reasons for that, especially given the previous presidential administration uh, and, and the kinds of things that were going on during the uh, Trump administration. And the attack on democracy and the fact that with the events of January the 6th, as well as other attacks on democracy, and the people who are doing this, the people who are perpetuating this, 
they have not been held accountable, even for the legal attacks on democracy. When I say legal attacks on democracy, that means going through the legislative process and all this kind of stuff for, for, for voter suppression uh, laws. And then of course the extra legal um, uh, attack on democracy, January 6th. And again, the use of fear and terrorism uh, on uh, um, people who administer the vote, for example. So I think that with that, people are concerned about where our democracy is. Uh, I don't think we have had the concerted effort to actually mobilize what I think is a potential larger power base for African-Americans and other people of color, and especially those who are at or below the poverty line, uh, that there's a large swath of voters that if they were properly mobilized could really turn uh, Durham County, uh, could turn the Triangle region, could turn North Carolina and turn the South around. Uh, and the data supports that. Uh, and what we have to do is to think about voter mobilization as something that is done not just a few weeks before an election, mm -hmm. but something that has to be done year round. It has to become really a part of the fabric of our social system. Adamu. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent with everything uh, Dr. Uh, Hall said. And, and in addition to you know uh, getting uh, you know mobilizing you know people uh, in terms of uh, the you know the numbers and participating and turning things around, I think also uh, mobilizing people uh, that they can govern uh, is important because um, a lot of people I, I think uh, really. Uh, feel disconnected from or don't want to engage in the political process uh, is because of the people whom are on the slate, you know, who are who are supposed to be represented. And it's, it's you know, it's sometimes, you know, a person who uh, takes, you know, money from from big business on both sides. So it's like, okay, if I vote for this person, you know, uh, the root, you know, cause of the issue uh, may still be there. But I think it's, it's on, on our part and, you know, people who are conscious uh, to really encourage people uh, to vote, mobilize people to vote, but uh, show that they can, you know, govern govern themselves. And you know, I, I think the numbers are low for African Americans, you know, for you know marginalized communities. But I think all, all around they're low. The the latest, you know, Raleigh City Council election, I think less than fifty percent of the population uh, participated uh, in the election, and it, it's kind of twofold. I think it's people. Um, and I, I use a term that Dr. Hall introduced uh, in his classes, but people's sense of cognitive liberation, you know, the belief that change can and, and should take place. Uh, that's one thing. But it's also the larger society has deeply embedded apathy uh, into uh, all aspects of the things we do. A lot of people, you know, are told in education, K-12, sometimes even on the university level, uh, that their participation in the political process is not important or that it doesn't matter or that I don't participate. I don't, that don't bother me, you know? Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've had to deal with that uh, with, with some of my students, but in terms of, you know, how, how things are being taught, especially in K through 12, people not being empowered, people, you know, uh, are seeing, you know, politics as some disconnected thing. And so it's twofold. We have a responsibility, but we have a responsibility for uh, the society, you know, that's supposed to govern us to uh, increase, you know, our, our participation and make it more accessible for us too. 
Yeah, and your point about, you know, K through 12, and again, I feel like I'm, I'm a broken record here and beating a dead horse, but, but again, there, there is a, a concerted effort to make sure that these types of discussions don't happen in those spaces because it does change young people's view of what role they play in society. And, and the more apathy you have, particularly within marginalized communities, <clears throat> those that have the power and want to continue to um, maintain the power notwithstanding the um, increasing percentage of black and brown people in this country, they want that apathy. And so we, we do have to make sure we um, continue to push back on that. I also appreciate what you were saying about encouraging people not just to vote, but also to govern and to run for office. And when we think about um, both you and Dr. Hall, your comments about why there was so much opposition to African-Americans being able to vote, it wasn't just vote, but there may be African-Americans who are also governing as well. So African-Americans who are on the school board, who are on the city council, who are in you know, the state general assembly or the state legislature um, and, you know, and then Congress. And so if you have more African-Americans voting, it, it necessarily follows that you will have more African-Americans who are participating um, as um, civic leaders and, and within the government. And so, Ajamu, I want to um, kind of put you on the spot there a little bit as the, the uh, young one here amongst us. How, what can we do to better um, encourage young, young folks to not just think about voting, but also to run for office? Because when we think about the future of this country, you know, it's the young folk who are really going to determine where we are, um, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing that we can do, and uh, I think with, you know, Black History Month, the last day being yesterday, um, I think is, is important is that, you know, when, when Carter G. Woodson uh, and others, you know, so many others were helping establish, you know, Negro History Week, you know, Negro History Month, what is now uh, Black History Month. Um, the overall goal was to make Black history widely accessible uh, for, you know, the Black work class and youth sectors of the community uh, in this very independent way. But the overall achieving goal, the end result uh, was to use um, Black History uh, Month to infuse uh, Black history into K-12 education. The whole point was to never for it to be this independent thing, this standalone thing. The whole point was for it to be engraved into the curriculum. And so I think, you know, young people uh, need to see, uh, and I think there are examples across the country where African-Americans have successfully, uh, you know, ran for office and brought about some change, you know, where uh, problems were solved, where people didn't have to, to compromise their values, their beliefs. And so I think, you know, we have to embed people into another way of being, you know, that's not in the traditional sense. And I think, luckily, you know, as African Americans, you know, we have uh, that tradition of going outside of, you know, uh, the traditional structure uh, to govern and uh, to organize our communities. And so um, I think it's, you know, uh, deep down to that political education uh, and showing examples of where it has been accept successful and the power of, of young people in society that change can and took could take place. I'll share this, this one experience. When I was in high school, I was 
you know, in 2014, I was doing work to end the school to prison pipeline and demanding solutions, not suspensions, counselors, not cops. And it was in 2014, I was a junior in high school, and that was the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer of 1964. And at this, uh, you know, political education school I was at, we watched a documentary. And so as a, as a young person seeing that, that shifted my entire, you know, worldview that these young people who are my age who are now a little bit older, you know, had a little more wisdom, you know, uh, were doing this and asking questions about uh, governance, society, you know, uh, the role that, that, you know, students should play. And so I think when young people are exposed to that, what is possible, that change can uh, and it should take place, then that's when I, I think we'll see a shift in, in young people being able to or want to uh, to participate. But now just things are so narrow and uh, limited, you know, and so surface level uh, that we don't get the depth that's necessary to see why voting or uh, being civically engaged is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience in, in college. I went to Bennett College in Greensboro and my mom was um, pretty adamant that I go to an HBCU. I grew up in Southern California and she was like, you need to go to an HBCU. And I remember that year, uh, my freshman year, we watched a documentary about Fannie Lou Hamer, who I had mm. no knowledge of before. And that had a dramatic impact on me. And Ajama, you mentioned um, the Mississippi, you know, Freedom Summer and um, the Freedom Democratic Party, which she was heavily involved in. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just, you know, being exposed and just learning about the richness of our history and doing a deep dive and not just surface level is something we need to remember and, mm -hmm. and ensure that we expose our young people and not so young people um, too, which is one of the reasons why we adore having you and Professor Hall on the show. You, you both always do a wonderful job of helping us think about these complex matters in a more in-depth way. So thank you as always for um, sharing of your time and your insight and your wisdom with us. Yep. Thank, thank you all. And you all played a, a huge role of showing that in-depth uh, analysis. You know, uh, even when I'm an undergrad, you know, going to the law school for Constitution Day activities, going to, you know, South Africa to look at, you know, uh, the international aspect uh, of things and uh, serving as, you know, board members on uh, Democracy, you know, uh, NC uh, with you all uh, has, has been very important. But thank you you all and thank NCCU for shaping me and showing me the, the in-depth analysis that is required uh, in order to move uh, not only our state forward, but humanity forward. Well, all right. And so we're out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jarvis Hall, professor of political science at North Carolina Central University, Ajamu Dillahunt, an NCCU alum, and he is a doctoral candidate at Michigan State University and professor at East Carolina University. And we want to appreciate or share our appreciation again for their thoughtful insights on Bloody Sunday and the continuing struggle to achieve and protect voting rights, particularly for marginalized groups in this country. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and that you'll share this show with your friends and colleagues. 
If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.